Welcome to Living Water, the teaching ministry of Jacksonville Presbyterian Church. This week, Pastor Dustin Jernigan continues our series, Summer in the Psalms, with the Waltzing Psalm. In this first of a two-part message, Pastor Dustin explains the three-pronged, waltz-like description of God's world, God's Word, and God's grace, as depicted in Psalm 19. While God is the Creator and not the creation, The glory and beauty of His creation is on display for the enjoyment of all. In His Word, His unique personality and will for our behavior are revealed, with instructions that will lead us to those blessings meant for us to experience. And in His grace, given through Christ, His infinite mercy, despite all our inevitable failings, is the final step of the waltz. Now, Living Water. Well, good morning. If you would grab your Bibles while you're still standing, open up to Psalm 19. If you don't have a print Bible in front of you, we've got blue hardback Bibles sort of all throughout the room if you need one. Uh, We'd love for you to open up to Psalm 19. It's page 538, I think, in your blue hardback Bible if you need one. We're looking at Psalm 19 together. We're going through the Psalms. It's page 538 in the blue hardback Bibles, Psalm 19. Christian, hear the word of the Lord this morning to us in Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There's no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes throughout all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them, and there's nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Christian, this is the word of the Lord. Amen. You may be seated and keep your Bible open in front of you this whole time if you would. Well, as we go through the Psalms, I want to remind you that Psalms were originally songs. And uh, I'm going to do an experiment that I first heard of from Stanford University. I'm going to see if you can figure something out. Okay, I'm going to clap the melody of a song. I'm not going to sing the song, but I want to know if you can catch the melody by my clapping. You ready? Anybody know what song I just clapped? Happy birthday to you. (laughs) Who didn't hear it? You're not alone. 
Um, it is a happy birthday because Katie, just in case, you know, this is a little in-house information, Katie and Ryan Erton are in the hospital right now, and it is going to be a happy birthday. Isn't that a great Father's Day gift? Right, I'll give you another one. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. The Bible tells me so. All right. I didn't come up with this stupid test. This was Stanford, okay? What they found, though, is if I hear the melody in my head, my assumption is that you also can hear the melody. But if you don't hear the melody, all you hear is a series of claps. Uh, friends, what I want to suggest to you this morning is Christianity works almost exactly the same way. You can be around Christians, you can be around the Bible, and it sounds like people are clapping, but you never quite get the melody. Uh, the people around you seem to know the melody, they seem to sing just fine, but you can't quite catch it. You don't hear the music behind the clapping. Or, or think about it this way, if you like dancing, um, you'll know that a waltz is what? How many beats are there to a waltz? One, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three. And when you have to dance a waltz, it doesn't matter. The, the, the time signature can be three, two, three, four, or three, eight. And the way you catch the rhythm of the dance is as you listen to the music in the back of your mind, what you're hearing is one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two. And that's how you learn to waltz. Uh, Christian, friend, do you hear the melody behind the clapping? Do you, do you catch the rhythm behind the music? Um, do you get Christianity? Does it make sense? Or does it, is it like a song you never catch the melody to? And a dance, everyone else seems to be dancing and they can dance just fine, but I don't get the rhythm to it. It doesn't come easily for me. Have you ever asked yourself that or thought that? Uh, well, friends, what I want to suggest to you this morning uh, is that um, I can show you how to catch the rhythm, and the melody. Um, you can learn to waltz. <laughs> and the reason I'm calling this psalm the waltzing psalm is because there's three steps to this psalm. Look right in front of you. It's easy. It's right there in front of you. The first step of catching the melody, the, the rhythm of the dance of God, is right there. You have to see God's world. Look at verse 1 through 6. That's the psalmist telling us about God's world. And then verses 7 through 11 in front of you, that's God revealing his word to us. And then lastly, in verses 12 through 14, we see God's grace. And that's the rhythm. One, two, three, one, two, three. That's the melody behind all the clapping we do as Christians. We've got to see the world that God has created. We've got to see his word as the truth itself. And we've got to see his grace. And friends, if you don't see those three things, uh, Christianity will never make sense to you. It'll be like a, a dance you never learn how to be a part of. It'll be like a song you never learn to sing. Uh, so friends, with that in mind, I want to show you how this works out. Look at verse one. Let's start off. The first step, the one step, right? Step one of the dance, of the waltz of God, right there, is seeing God's world. Look at verse one, it says, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. And right there, there that's hearkening back to Genesis one, right? That God has created this world. 
And part of the reason God created this world was to reveal his glory. And I know like we don't think about glory a whole lot. Um, You don't normally say glory. Um, I mean, Kanye West talks about glory, but he's not like most people, right? You know, we don't, we don't use the word glory very much anymore, but remember, an easy definition of what glory means is just impressiveness. Now, I don't know if that's a word or not. Impressiveness is probably not an actual word, but it's the aspect of being impressive, of being wowed by something, right? And that's what verse one is saying. It's saying the heavens, you know, the stars, the heavens, you know, the Hashemayim in Hebrew, the stuff up in the sky, those things speak to us. And in Hebrew, when it says declare, it means it's continuing to declare. It has always been declaring the impressiveness, the awesomeness of God. And he he echoes that again. He says, the sky above proclaims his handiwork. God is a creative God that has created a beautiful world. Right, in verse two and following, it explains it more and more, right? Day, Day to day, this pours out a speech and night to night reveals knowledge. And basically what that is explaining is the beauty that God has created within this world is nonstop and continual. And even though creation doesn't literally speak to us, it communicates, doesn't it? Verse three, you know, this is a little hard in Hebrew, uh, but essentially what it's saying is there is no um, speech nor are there words where the voice is not heard, meaning there's not an area of this world that has not seen the glory of God. Um, There's not a culture in this world that doesn't experience the impressiveness of El, of God in Hebrew, of the creator. Everywhere, every day, every night, you and I swim in an ocean of the beauty of the impressive glory of God. It's all around us. And that's what verse four is saying. This message, you know, this word, you know, this revelation of God's impressiveness, it goes throughout all the earth in their words to the end of the world, meaning it expands everywhere. The whole globe sees the glory of God. And then, you know, I love how, you know, he takes it next because as much as he's taking sort of a global view of how creation testifies to a creator, uh, he then kind of focuses attention on the sun. And you may be wondering, why is he so concerned about the sun? And he has kind of some funny descriptions of the sun. You know, he says, and God, he made a tent for the sun. And you may think, I don't really know what that is talking about. Well, friends, what I want to remind you of is in the ancient Near Eastern world, most people worship the sun, right? Ra, right? The great Egyptian sun god, right? Most people saw the sun as sort of the deity itself. Uh, but the God of the Bible explains that, no, I'm the creator God. Um, I am not an object within the world. I am the creator of the world. I don't enter the world any more than Shakespeare enters Macbeth. I am above, I am the creator. I can't enter into a dialogue with Hamlet because I'm Shakespeare. I am the creator, I am not the creation. You are not to worship man-made things or worship the creation, you are to worship the creator. And so when he says God has set a tent, what he's saying is God has a home for the sun. (laughs) The sun doesn't control the world, God tells the sun what to do. And in the ancient Near Eastern world, they would see the sun and it went to its home. It went to bed, right? (laughs) When the sun sets, I guess the sun went to bed, right? And that's what David is saying. The sun doesn't control things. God tells the sun when to rise and when to go to bed because God has created everything. And there's a chasm between the creator and creation. Don't worship the creation. 
See it as bearing the fingerprints of the creator. And then he goes on, and as he's thinking about the beauty of the world that you and I, as he's seeing God's world, the world around us, the physical world, his mind goes to all of these other beautiful things uh, that provoke wonder and excitement and joy. And the next thing he talks about is he thinks of the sun. He goes, yeah, you know what the sun reminds me of? It's like when a bridegroom leaves his chamber. All right, let me explain what that means as much as I can. A groom, after his wedding night, would leave his room kind of happy, right? If you don't know what I'm talking about, it is Father's Day. So when you're driving home, maybe ask your parents what this is talking about. But if you don't know why a groom would be leaping out of his bedroom the next morning, this is not the time to explain that to you. Did you know the Bible is actually like PG-13 and above? Anyway. You know, it was not written by white Victorian Europeans, right? Just in case you thought that. There's beauty in romantic, erotic love between a husband and his wife. There's beauty in the sun. There's beauty in creation. These are all things that reveal the fingerprints of a creator. And then he goes on and he says, this creation, is, it's, like, it's like a strong man who runs his course with joy. You know, we would maybe say it this way. It's like a great athlete who's about to run the 100-meter dash at the Olympics. Ever trained and practiced and then put on your shin guards and then stood on the side of the soccer field before you went out to the game and just been so excited with your teammates? That sense of joy and wonder and excitement and passion... God says those are the fingerprints of a creative God who created this beautiful world. See, this glory of God goes throughout all the world. Look at verse six. Creation, you know, the sun, the symbol of God's creative work, it goes to the ends of the world. And this glory of God, the reality of God, um, there's nothing that doesn't experience the heat of the warmth of God's truth in his world. You know, is it any wonder then, you know, why C.S. Lewis you know, the Oxford professor and author of the Chronicles of Narnia and Mere Christianity, uh, he said this about Psalm 19. He says, I take this to be the greatest poem in the Psalter in one of the greatest lyrics in the world. Now, of course, you know, when we think about how, you know, the world reveals kind of a creator, you know, this does sort of beg the question for many of us, though, that, well, when I see the world, I don't see a creator. What I see are sort of scientific processes, right? So when I, when I think about a guy getting excited after his wedding day, well, that really is a result sort of of our sexual urges, which is really the whole point of life, right, is to reproduce and survive, which is why we prefer attractive people and why we like, you know, attractive athletes because we see them as more uh, positive for reproductive, you know, needs and survival, right? So I, you know, if you've ever felt like that, um, I understand what you're, where you're coming from. Uh, but friends, what I want you to sort of consider uh, this morning, if that's where you are, is, is that actually the best explanation for the world around you? Uh, because more and more, uh, even scientists are, are struggling with how to explain the beauty and the order of creation in a way that uh, precludes a creator. Um, I mean, think, I'll, I'll give you just some examples. Um, it, in 1913, there was a scientist named Vesto Melvin Sliffler. 
Uh, he discovered, you know, famously, there were about a dozen galaxies moving away from Earth at a really high speed, right? And years later, there was an astronomer named Edwin Hubble, like the Hubble telescope was named after him. He carried this idea further and proved that as the stars were moving further and further away and the faster they were moving, he was actually able to figure out if you reverse engineer that, that means that there was a, a beginning moment in history, right? We, we now know it as the Big Bang, right? When everything we know came into existence, right? Uh, but did you know that actually when these guys started advocating for this view, that most of the scientific community was repulsed by this idea. Uh, they seemed like it gave too much credence to the idea that there was a God who created things in a moment like Genesis 1 describes. Um, actually, uh, Philip Morrison, who was an MIT professor, after studying Hubble's work about the Big Bang, said this. He says, I would like to reject it because it seems to, pre to, to, to presume um, something that exists outside of, outside of time, space, and energy that could create these things. All right, so let me just kind of keep pushing on this idea just for a second. Um, there's a guy named Robert Jastrow who founded the Goddard Institute for Space Studies at Columbia University. He works with NASA. Um, and he, he says it this way. This is a quote from him. He says, astronomers now find they have painted themselves into a corner because they have proven by their own methods that the world began abruptly in an act of creation to which you can trace the seeds of every star, every planet, every living thing in the cosmos and on this earth. And they have found that this all happened as a product of forces they cannot hope to ever discover. That there are what I or anyone else would call supernatural forces at work, I now think is a scientifically proven fact. For the scientist who has lived by his faith in the power of reason, the story ends like a bad dream. He has scaled the mountains of ignorance and he is about to conquer the highest peak. As he pulls himself over the rock, he is greeted by a band of theologians who have been sitting there for centuries. That was Robert Jaster of the Goddard Center for Space Studies. Now, of course, we know that lots and lots of scientists um, cannot abide the idea that there is a creative God, uh, you know, that there is a creator behind everything. Uh, but friends, the more and more we study, the harder and harder it's becoming to explain the world around us without a creator. And I wish I could go more into it. We can talk about it more if you'd like. Uh, but let me just sort of catch you up to speed. Um, it is so hard to explain how our world is so perfectly orchestrated that the running um, philosophy now among theoretical physicists is that the best explanation we can have is that there, this must not be the only universe. There must be a multiverse. There must be an infinite number of universes because this one is just too dang perfect. Um, actually, um, <laughs> there's a guy named Alan Lightman. You may have heard of him. He, he, he wrote an article for Harper's Magazine in 2017 called Science's Crisis of Faith. And as a skeptical scientist, he basically goes on, he says, uh, he, I'll quote a at the end of his passage about this kind of crisis. What do we do? The world seems so designed. How are we supposed to explain this? He says, he quotes this. He says, but we have no conceivable way of observing if there are these other universes and we cannot prove their existence. Thus to explain what we see in the world and in our mental deductions, we must believe in what we cannot prove. He says, if you, if you ignore a creator, you're left, we have to believe in a multiverse now, even though we know we will never be able to prove it. Uh, so friends, when you see the world, 
Um, one explanation is sort of the reproductive urges drive everything and our survival urges drive everything and you know we're just stardust after a big bang. Uh, but friends, if, if that were true, just think about this. Um, what in the world then is beauty? I mean, look at Psalm 1. What he's saying is, he's saying, if you have eyes to see, the whole cosmos has the fingerprints of God. And not only is it impressive, it's beautiful. It's beautiful. There's beauty in this world, not just in a sun rising, but, but in a man loving his wife, right? In, in an athlete running his race. There's beauty in that moment. So what in the world then is, how do you account for beauty? Now, it, I mean, of course, you could always say, you know, well, beauty is just us responding to survival and reproductive urges. Uh, but friends, is that, really, is that really what you think beauty is? <laughs> uh, because consider this, that, de- that narrow definition that everything is either a sexual or a survival drive, that really doesn't explain um, many of the things that you would define as beautiful. I mean, just, you know, consider this. What reproductive quality does music have? What survival instinct does, does, does music provide or melody? Um, and notice that actually things that are beautiful um, often happen in sort of paradoxes, right? You can see something beautiful not in its, you know, survival ability, but sometimes you can see beauty in something like a desert. Ever been driving down the road in the middle of nowhere? Everything's a desert and you think it's so beautiful. Ever seen terrain after a hurricane and just thought, there's strange beauty to this. Have you ever seen a child show genuine love and friendship to an adult with Down syndrome? What reproductive or survival urge does that child have? And why do you respond so viscerally to it? You see, friends, how do you account for beauty in this world? And how do you account for the incredible design of the world? Uh, Friends, the melody behind the clapping is this. We say it's God. It's God. It's the creator. Look at verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God. In Hebrew, that word right there for God is El. It's the same word we would use for God. That's the first step to the dance. But notice, starting in verse 7, at the second step, when we start to see God's truth, we don't call him God, generic God. Instead, starting in verses 7 through 11, the name of God shifts. It's no longer generic creator. It shifts right there in verse 7. Look, it says, the law of the Lord is perfect. And if you look in your Bible, you'll notice something kind of interesting. You may have never noticed this before, but the name Lord right there, if you look closely, is actually in all capitalized letters. The law of the Lord. You're not supposed to shout it. That's not like, it's not putting it in bold, right? The law of the Lord. That's not what it's saying. Lord right there is meant to cue you as a reader to know that the word right there is not really Lord. The word is Yahweh, the divine personal name of the creator. So step one is we see God's world. Step two is we see God's truth. And by God's truth, I mean his word, how he reveals himself to us in the person of Yahweh. Now, you get close to saying Yahweh like all of the time when you say hallelujah, hallelujah, 
That's actually what you're saying when you say hallelujah. Now, what's the third commandment? Anybody know what the third commandment is? You shall not take the name of the Lord. You don't want to say God's divine name in an inappropriate way. So you know what the Israelites did? They just never said the name Yahweh. And if they wanted to say praise Yahweh, hallelujah, Yahweh, what did they do? Hallelujah. I didn't say Yahweh, didn't take the third commandment inappropriately, didn't break the commandment. One way you avoid the third commandment is you just never say Yahweh. Which is why today uh, we, we struggle sometimes to know exactly how would they have pronounced Yahweh? Did they say Yahweh? And sometimes we think they'll say Jehovah, but that's not what they said. But sometimes you'll see in the Bible say Jehovah because it's trying to explain how do you pronounce the name that is inexpressible? God in his person, his personality, his uniqueness, not just God as the creator, but the God of the Bible. I am Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I am that I am. I am Yahweh. This is the second step is you have to see God as revealed through his word his uniqueness. And look at all of the promises that this passage gives. Look at 7 through 11. It says, the law, the Torah, the instruction of Yahweh is perfect. It revives the soul. When Hebrew people would, um, you know, they get close to death, they would see that as they were dying and then as they passed away, they would say their soul left their body. So to be revived in your soul was right to come back from almost being dead, right? You see, what the Bible is explaining to you is knowing that God exists is not enough to have life in this world. You can acknowledge that there is a God creator, but profoundly what you need to know to live in the world that God created is you need to know the creator as Yahweh himself. And if you do, all of his ways are perfect. And what you'll experience is life itself. Your life will be restored. You will be revived and refreshed And then he goes on, he says, God's testimony is sure. It makes wise the simple, right? It's, you know, the way we're supposed to live is not immediately clear to us. Is it immediately clear to you that you're supposed to care for people who are weaker than you? That when you work, you're supposed to work for the glory of God and not your own pride? These things are not immediately clear to us. So this is where we need God to reveal his will for us. And that's what happens through his instruction. We'd like to invite you to worship with us Sunday mornings at 8.30 or 10.30 a.m. in our sanctuary at 425 Middle Street in Jacksonville. For more information, call 899-1287 or visit our website. Join us next week at this same time for part two of The Waltzing Psalm from Living Water, the teaching ministry of Jacksonville Presbyterian Church.